Well, welcome back to Sheep Stuff You Should Know. I'm Dan Macon up here in Auburn, California, and we have a new co-host. Dr. Rosie Bush has been on with us several times, but uh, we made it official and twisted her arm really hard, made her become a co-host. So we're excited to have Dr. Bush as part of this team, and and, uh, it'll break up the monotony of having to listen to Ryan and Dan all the time. So Dr. Bush, welcome. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. I'm good. It's a sunny day here in Davis, California. <laughs> yeah, no, sunny. Sunny is, it's hard not to enjoy a day like this, but I looked at soil moisture yesterday where we've got our sheep and it's getting, you know, we're at, we're at a point now where we're probably not going to catch up this year. I'm afraid. Yeah. Spring is here, but it hasn't sprung. I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see what, what the forage does on our rangeland pastures, but I suspect with it as dry as it is, and you guys had North wind like we did, I think. Oh man, it was yeah, pretty rough. It's going to, I think the feed's all going to mature early and, and uh, it's just one of those years. So we shall see every year's different. (laughs) Yep. That's very true. (laughs) Very true. So I know you've been on a couple of times, but I wanted to, um, if folks are, are just tuning in for the first time, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're doing? Who are you? What do you do? Yeah. So I am the sheep and goat extension veterinarian at UC Davis School of Vet Med. And I have been in different roles in livestock medicine um, since I graduated vet school. I went to UC Davis for animal science and vet school. Um, and then I practiced in a mixed practice in Hollister, California, and came back and did a internal medicine residency in livestock medicine and surgery. And then um, did a brief stint with CDFA with their antimicrobial use and stewardship program and got a lot of great experience with educational resources and things like that. And yeah, I'm back here and I get to work with people like you and it's fun. I love it. <laughs> and and you grew up in in kind of that hotbed of rural California yeah. industry, right? Where did you grow up? <laughs> totally, yeah. <laughs> I grew up in San Francisco. Um, oh, and <laughs> there's a lot of sheep there, <laughs> different things. <laughs> but yeah, I've always been really drawn to just agriculture and open spaces. And, you know, when I said, I want to go to Davis to go to vet school, it was kind of a a shock to people because they didn't, I mean, even Davis is a pretty big town. People didn't, you know, they thought they were just cows out there. So (laughs) (laughs) my experience in Davis was, um, that it had, there were more stoplights between my apartment and campus than there were in the county I grew up in. And the the joke was always, we don't have any stoplights, but we've had, we got the colors picked out for them when we do get one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now there are plenty of stoplights and they have a mind of their own. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. 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 And, and, you know, I think probably we, Ryan and I share about our families. Tell us a little bit about your family. Yeah. So I have, um, Brian, my husband, he's a irrigation engineer. He, he's a general manager for irrigation and reclamation district. And, um, I have three kids and they're 
range in age from three to seven. <laughs> so wow. it's, we're busy. <laughs> I, yeah. To say the least, to yeah. say the least. And yeah. is, is homeschooling still happening for you? Yes. Yep. So we're lucky we have some, we've been able to meet some good parents um, through school. So we do some trading of distance learning. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. It's funny because I'm, you know, I, I do education in my career, but I typically <laughs> teach people who want to learn. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Motivation's a little different, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Motivating <laughs> seven-year-olds to do something, you know, do paperwork basically has been a yeah. challenge, but <laughs> well, motivating 53 year olds to do paperwork can be a challenge. Yeah. It just doesn't too. get easier. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's cool. Very yeah. cool. So you had talked about some topics and I had talked about some topics and I think we should just flip a coin, a virtual coin, yeah. figure out what should we, should we dive into the breeding soundness exam stuff does that yeah i think sense? it's a timely topic yeah that i do too good. you know we're, we're a little bit our my operation is a little bit off cycle but i know there's an awful lot of california producers that'll be thinking about um getting rams purchased and turned out here in the next six to eight weeks and and yeah. we've got the california ram sale coming up in a couple of weeks uh down in tulare so definitely something that's on a lot of folks minds right now. So I guess my first question is what is a breeding soundness exam? What does that in, what does that mean? Yeah, well so a breeding soundness exam is a pretty broad term. Um it can apply to both females and males. Um and you know the first question that you might think about is what is your reproductive history? So, you know, what What's your lambing rate? Um, have you had any challenges with dry use, um, abortions? Um, so a lot of that is, that's kind of like the big picture. You know, you mm -hmm. start with the open-ended funnel and then kind of narrow in. Mm -hmm. um, and then when we start focusing on rams, because um, rams have a huge impact on your genetic improvement for your flock. Um, you're really going to want to make sure that they're doing their job. Um, so part of that is just general health um, of the ram. So, you know, looking at their behavior, um, looking at their body condition, if they have any signs of any kind of chronic diseases or parasites. Um, and then you kind of get even more narrowed in and start looking at their reproductive tract. Okay. Um, if they have any signs of swelling or abnormalities in their actual like testes or epididymis, mm -hmm. um, those can be signs of disease. And then also looking at their prepuce, which is where the penis will come out. Mm -hmm. Um, if they have any inflammation or pizzle rot there, they're not going to want to extend or mount a U. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you can actually have a vet come out and look at um, their actual swimmers and see if they're they have good morphology, um, so how they're shaped, and then if they're actually modal, so if they move across the slide under the microscope. Um, and then also I forgot scrotal circumference has been okay. very well studied in rams. Yeah. And 
can have a huge impact on how many ewes they can cover, how many twins they have. Um, yeah. So this is something, this is, this is another one of those areas where having a, a vet client patient relationship can be really critical, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I think they've found that, you know, over years, you know, it was like a quarter to half of the Rams can actually have unsatisfactory breeding soundness exams. So that's mm-hmm. a pretty big impact on an operation. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. What are, what are some of the diseases that, that you'd want to be aware of or, or thinking about as you're buying rams? What are, what are things to look for? That's so I, I would like to ask you that question. <laughs> <laughs> Fair I, I mean, I have certainly ideas for what will impact fertility. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you, like, if you're buying a new Ram, what are some things that you're concerned about or willing to test for once before you bring them on? You know, I'm going to be embarrassed to admit that we've never actually done breeding soundness exams or asked for health certificates. We've, we've bought, we have typically bought all of our Rams private treaty from people who will stand by them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, looking for kind of the, the um, epididymitis type of things um, would be one of those issues for us. Um, just palpating the testicles to see if anything seems abnormal, even to my untrained hands, mm-hmm. you know, I think is, is part of it. General appearance, um, body condition is always a big thing for me. If, if I know how they've been fed and they're in good body condition, that's a good sign that their general health, I think, is is going to be um, pretty good. I think for for us as small producers, reputation is a big one. Um, I will say that we've had a, an issue with different sets of brands in the last two years that we're trying to kind of figure out what's going on. And it's not that that we've had fertility issues; it's that we've had a big gap between the big press of lambs early in our lambing season. And then obviously things um, slowed down and, and probably ewes were getting rebred and they don't lamb again till the very end of the lambing season. Yeah. And typically ewes will cycle together. Mm-hmm. So it that's where we kind of think about how many rams you need per ewe. Because uh, if they're all cycling at once, that ram has to cover those use all like within a few days. Um, so they're, you know, they're certainly athletes. They have a lot of really challenging work to do. Yep. And so, like you said, I think some of the things reputation, I think is going to be important no matter what size of operation you're running. Um, and you know, things that affect their ability to do their job. So their vision, do they have any signs of like scars? Do they have any challenges with pink eye um their so their soundness or whether or not they're lame would be something so a foot rot is a problem um swollen joints things like that um would be important they're not necessarily something that you would test for but you you know would want to make sure that they don't have those coming on and then body condition is huge um, because before breeding season, you know, they should be in really good condition because they are going to lose condition. <laughs> <laughs> Even at our scale, we probably lose a full body condition score 
yeah. six weeks that the Rams are with the U's. Yeah. yeah. So, and you know, but thinking from a disease standpoint, things that you might consider testing would be that might affect that um, and their ability to maintain condition. So you're not losing an extra condition score would be mm-hmm. thing like CL. I know we talked about that mm-hmm. a little bit last time. Mm-hmm. Um, Rams can also be a source of introduction of CL. Um, if you do have, you know, a control program um, and then OPP would be another one. Right. Um, I know we're not worried about mastitis with Rams, but it also affects their lungs. Um, and then um, going more specifically to reproductive diseases, we talk about brucella ovis quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And that's the cause of the epididymitis that you're mm-hmm. talking about when you palpate to feel for really firm lumps. Um, and is that something you can blood test to confirm or how do you confirm that condition? Yeah. So there's, there's an ELISA test that I know about. Um, and then I believe there's a newer test. I, th- I think it might be a newer ELISA. Um, but yeah, so those kind of, they confirm that they've been exposed to it. Um, it's another one of those chronic diseases, so they don't usually get rid of it. So, right. Um, right. But it's, you know, it's an imperfect test. You can have animals that come up positive that are actually negative. So that's one where you might do, it's called serial testing, where you test them once. If they come up positive, then, you know, and you don't have any obvious signs of disease, you might wait a few weeks and retest them. Yes. Okay. Yeah. What What about after the fact? What if you start seeing reproductive problems in in rams that you've already got? Would you recommend um, at that point then doing some more testing and figuring out what's going on? What? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think breeding soundness exams are a worthwhile investment that you know you could mm-hmm. justify doing them annually, mm-hmm. um, so that you know the ram power that you're putting into your U flock actually has the effect that you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting thinking about the use all kind of cycling together too. And I wonder, we've always kind of tried to run 30 to 35 used per ram. Um, is there a difference in a ram's libido or ability to cover use based on age? Too. Yeah, for sure. So if you have really immature rams, they kind of don't know which end is up and <laughs> they, they tend to be motivated just inexperienced. Um, <laughs> so it can be helpful to have them with older rams, um, but just so that they can kind of learn the ropes, um, especially as long as that older ram has been effective, right? So, cause you could have older rams that are covering ewes and won't let the younger ram cover. Right. Um, but then if he's not effective, then you have a lot of unbred ewes. Right. Uh, right. So. Yeah. And that's, I think we're finding that in this genetics study that we're, we've been doing um, with a number of other farm advisors too, that, that it's kind of the 80-20 rule seems to apply to rams too, that that 
a small proportion of the Rams are doing the bulk of the work in many cases. Yeah. Yeah. And so behavior comes into a lot of that, actually observing them. Um, I wonder if your callers could be used for something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting thought too. Certainly marking harnesses and things like that could be a part of it too. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, you know, there's a lot of, um, Folks that suggest that Rams, some Rams will just like to hang out in their buddy groups rather than actually go and mingle with the ladies. (laughs) It does take two to mingle too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. That, so if you, if like, for for example, um, my vet, um, who I also am married to doesn't have the capability of doing breeding soundness exams, or at least doing semen testing on rams. So, are there are there vets that you can contact that that do that sort of thing in California, or or how would somebody go about finding a vet that could do that kind of work if they don't already have a relationship? I don't. So there's a AASRP. <laughs> mm-hmm. Apparently veterinarians really like acronyms, <laughs> <laughs> but it's the American Association of Small Ruminant Practitioners. Um, their website is aasrp.org. And on that website, they have a find a vet um, portal. And okay. from my, and I have it on my website too. I have it linked there, but um, from my experience, it's easiest just to put your state in. You can get you know, as close to the town, but most vets, I mean, they work with a pretty big radius. So even if you, you know, and there's not a ton in the state. So if you just put California, you probably come up with about 30 or 40, and then you can find which are in towns closest to you. Yeah. Um, The neat thing with that though, is you can select for vets that do reproductive work. Um, I don't know how accurate it is, <laughs> but <laughs> it does help um, kind of narrow it down. Um, and those vets that do reproductive work um, often travel, you know, there's especially, I mean, these are prevented or like herd health type issues. So yeah. they can be scheduled pretty far in advance. Um, and so that kind of travel can be scheduled in. Yeah. Okay. What just for people listening, what's your website? How would they find your website? <laughs> it's um, it's a UCANR website. So if you Google UCANR and then UCCE sheep and goats, okay, it's there. But the actual website is ucanr.edu backslash sites backslash sheep and goat. <laughs> but cool. you could Google it and it should yeah. come up. Okay. Cool. That's a great resource. That's a, that's a great idea. What, so you mentioned timing. Um, when should somebody think about scheduling these kinds of breeding soundness exams? Um, so typically, so (laughs) when we're wanting to prepare for breeding, it's a good idea to do your breeding soundness exam within a 60 day period when you're going to turn them out. Um, it's a bit challenging because if you do have rams that you have to kick out, you need to be able to find replacements. Right. Um, but if you do it too far ahead of time, um, the this development of sperm is pretty sensitive. Um, and if 
you know, if you have a ram that gets sick, it takes 60 days before they can start developing semen again. Um, Okay. So it's a good idea to be pretty close to that window. So you have an idea of who's going to be most likely um, to be able to, you know, reproduce. (laughs) But if you get further out, um, you may not, you know, you may may have an event happen and then they won't actually be able to do their job. Yeah. Um, Yeah. What, what kinds of vaccines, is there any difference in the vaccination program for rams versus ewes that you would, would suggest um, in light of some of those, those issues? Or is it pretty much the same program? It's, so I think it's, I mean, I usually want the, the rams to be vaccinated with the same type of program that you're using for your flock. Um, because, you know, your, your vaccine program is going to be based on a risk management type of program. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're only vaccinating for CD&T, it's important to vaccinate rams for CD&T. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a lot of the same risk factors. Um, if you add in, you know, a different vaccine, you I guess if you're <laughs> thinking about that, if you're doing abortion vaccines, um, I don't know that you would actually need to do that for your rams. I don't know. Oh, okay. I'd have to look into that to see if that has any yeah. kind of effect on if the rams are carrying in their transmission. Yeah. Yeah. Now I know we talked about abortion issues a little bit the last time you visited with Ryan and I, but um, you know, what, I know this will be different for every producer, but at what point would you say you're kind of beyond the background level of what you would expect abortion wise and you need to start figuring out causes? What What's kind of your rule of thumb in that regard? Well, so the, you know, the recommendation is anything over 5%. Um, but that said, if you have, you know, let's say you have one to 2%, but they're happening within a one day period, that would be something that I would start looking into. So I think the, you know, how frequent they are um, is really important too. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of our rule of thumb. If, if, if we have more than one, that looks very similar in how it's presented and and in a short timeframe, that is an alarm bell for us. Yeah. And, you know, some, I think most of the time it's not something, you know, when you, let's say you start submitting tests and you start getting answers back. A lot of times it's not something that you can directly impact this cycle. Right. Um, Right. It might be, you know, potentially a lot of our normal biosecurity type stuff, you know, like we kind of talked about last time um, would be what you would do right then and there, no matter what the cause is. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. finding out what the cause is could potentially impact how you approach the next lambing season. Right. Um, right. And even the next breeding season, perhaps. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think just having that information, information knowledge is, is so critical in, in trying to do this as a business. I think it sometimes for me is hard to, to say, oh, I'm having this problem. I'll just try to get through it. 
rather than trying to get the information and make adjustments to what we might do. Yeah. Part of that challenge is sometimes you won't know, you know, like this, this abortion that we took in is still inconclusive and that, that, that in itself, I guess, is a conclusion, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. You know that you don't, there's not much you need to do as far as changing your vaccine program. And, you know, because if you were going off of assumptions, you might take a, you know, maybe a less tall, a less risk averse approach and, you know, just vaccinate for everything. And by submitting, you know, that that's probably not something you need to do this time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an important point. Getting back to Rams a little bit, anything different that we need to think about in terms of their mineral program or, you know, more than just general nutrition? Is there anything, anything to look at in terms of uh, micronutrients? As far as I know, it's, there's nothing like specific, but I feel like that would be a question that Whit Stewart would <laughs> be really great at answering. I think that's a grand idea. <laughs> in fact, we just hit on a topic for Whit to cover when he comes out here in, in June, right? Yep. We'll tell him we want micronutrients and mineral program. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Watch out, Whit. We got your whole trip planned for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so really, you know, kind of knowing what your what your micronutrient status is in your forage or your your feed resources is important regardless, right? Yeah. That's going to have a bearing on the ram's overall health. Yep. Yeah. And, it, you know, like you've said before, you're feeding the rumen and these micronutrients are, you know, really important for those rumen microbes also for them to yeah. do their job. And so. Yeah. Yeah. What what else? So I let you ask me, what else should I be asking or looking at when I go look at rams? What are, you know, what, what should, what's a, a reasonably cost-effective, but um, important approach to, to ram selection for a producer? What would you recommend? Well, I think, you know, knowing at least, you know, like the similarities and differences of your operation compared to where you're buying the Ram. So, you know, are you expecting them to go from sitting on a couch to running a marathon? (laughs) And, you know, can they do that? Um, Or are they going from, you know, running a marathon to just going at a lower pace? So I think knowing what you're expecting that Ram to transition to, mm-hmm. um, is really helpful. So just having, like you said, reputation is everything and being able to have that open conversation with your mm-hmm. Ram producer, um, would be really helpful to kind of know, and it might help you with your planning. Um, you know, if, let's say you do want to buy Rams that are sitting on a couch right now, it'll help you know, okay, well, how many of those do I need? Because they're not going to be able to run a marathon. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not going to be able to cover the country like something that came from a, a more similar environment. Yeah. 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 And I would suspect there's some, some differences in kind of breeding season too. We're as, as spring lammers, we're turning rams out in the fall when it's a little easier conditions for them. But if you were turning rams out in May or June um, here in California, that's a, that's a very different 
type of climate environment. Yeah. And I, there are some rams that are far more seasonal than others. Mm-hmm. So that would be more of a breed thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So. Sure. Sure. What, um, it's just something else I was going to ask you, but it totally slipped my tiny brain. <laughs> Your turn to ask questions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is a, a highly, highly produced podcast. We're yes. <laughs> um, well, so you have some pretty rough country. Is there anything that you do with your rams before you turn them out? Is there anything, you know, process wise, or are you getting your hands on them? What do you do before you actually turn them out? Yeah. So we'll, we do, um, where we, where we actually have the breeding groups separated. It's, it's a little less rough country than where we lamb in, in terms of terrain and, and, um, you know, just the topography, but mm-hmm. uh, we make sure they're sound, um, just kind of structurally sound at that point. Um, I want to make sure that they've got good feet and legs, um, sound in their hip structure, those types of things. We flush the ewes and we kind of put the rams on the same schedule. I want them on a rising plane of nutrition prior to breeding as well, partly just to bump their body condition up, knowing they're they're going to forget to eat for about six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll, we'll spend some time on that. We'll, we do a targeted deworming with all of our sheep. So we don't just blanket deworm everything. And we subject the rams to the same kind of evaluation to determine if they need to be dewormed. Um, but we'll do that when we start the flushing process with both groups and just look at where they are. Um, and that's hands-on or kind of arm's length? With uh, to some extent hands-on. So we use that, the kind of the modification to the FAMACHA system. Um, I'll look at, at the color of the third eyelid, but then we also look at, at noses, at whether they've got any bottle jaw symptoms, um, look to see what their um, manure consistency is, and then handle them for body condition score at that point too. And um, if any of those things come up, with something that looks like we need to treat, then we'll, we'll deworm, um, that way. Um, we also will try if we can, depending on where the use are at that point. Um, we typically keep, try to keep the Rams on another property through the summer. So they're not close to the use, but about the time we start a flushing ration with the ewes. We try to move the rams in close proximity to the ewes um, just so we get a little bit of that ram effect in the ewes too and, and synchronize their cycles a little bit. Um, <laughs> somebody told me a great quote. They had unexpected lambs, didn't know their sheep were bred and, and uh, may have been Ryan said, well, where there's a ram, there's a way. Yes. And so we are a little cautious about how close. Even through fence lines. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we don't give them credit for how clever they can be. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about athletic. That's more athleticism. Yes. Half in our flock, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and then when we when we pull the rams, the other thing we tend to have to do. Um, I'll try to pin them in a really small 
pen where they can't get a running start at each other for a couple of days, just so they get each other's smell all over them again um, before we turn them out. That tends to reduce the amount of injury we see after we pull the rams. We have to do that again after this year because they'll they'll forget <laughs> with with their new spiffy haircuts. They'll forget that they've been with that ram all winter, and it's trying to try to kick his butt again. So we'll we'll pin them in tight quarters again. So. Do you? I think you may have already said this, but how many rams do you use per you? I think you said this. We our target is typically thirty to thirty-five used to the ram. Um, we may reevaluate that a little bit. We may go to 25, 20 to 25. Um, <laughs> I, you know, keeping Rams is kind of a necessary evil. If I didn't have to have Rams around all year, it'd be okay with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always that balance between having enough Rams and, um, and then having to take care of that many Rams through the the time that they're not really working. Um, How come you don't AI your use like they do with <laughs> cattle? <laughs> what a great question. So the I, I'm hopeful that maybe we'll get AI technology that would be transcervical, but at the moment it's all laparoscopic, right? In this yep. place here. Um, yeah. <laughs> I helped when I was a, a little resident, <laughs> a wee resident. <laughs> I helped with a study that they were doing at UC Davis on looking at different cervix um, anatomy. And there, uh, there are so many different shapes of (laughs) cervix for sheep and they make it really, really challenging. It's a barrier basically for any kind of AI transcervically. So that's the, I was going to ask you what the issue is. Is it basically just the diversity of, of cervical anatomy in sheep that makes that so difficult? Yeah, it's really, so like with cattle, you can get um, a pipette or a straw through, um, actually through the cervix and you deposit intrauterine. Yeah. And, you know, like with pigs, they have a corkscrew cervix and there is a, you know, a different device that you can just basically thread through the cervix and it goes the same way. And in sheep, there's just, there is not that the, I think the morphology, like the shapes are so different um, that we can't actually get through the cervix. It's not like a neat little perfect little tract. It kind of goes, there's big (laughs) folds and it just, it's a maze. (laughs) I don't know how the Ram does it. (laughs) (laughs) Talented Ram. (laughs) So there, yeah, you basically, if you do want to do artificial insemination or any kind of advanced reproductive technologies that's with laparoscopic AI. Um, and uh, we've, you know, the guy that we buy our Shropshire Rams from now that, that semen can be imported again, has done a little bit of that. Um, but at a, on a commercial scale, even on a small scale like ours, it just doesn't pencil out. Yeah. Um, no way that pencils out, but it, it's, It'd be interesting if that technology improves to think about how we might incorporate some of that in the sheep industry too. Yeah. And I think it might help with some of the, you know, the conversations around disease control because you could actually maintain a closed herd. Yeah. Um, Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. So where, what do you see as the research needs around sheep reproduction, you know, coming at this from, from your perspective as a, as a veterinarian? I think, I think there's a lot of opportunity. I think right now, I think it would be good to focus on, you know, disease control. And I mean, obviously this is coming from me with the internal mm-hmm. medicine background, yeah. but I think, you know, if we can't have a, if we, if we're not to the point of having a healthy lamb crop, then it doesn't matter all the advanced reproductive technologies. Um, so, you know, I think mm-hmm. having a good, understanding of you know disease pathophysiology and control and how we can feasibly do that and if advanced repro technologies help us get there then that would be huge yeah um so i think there's a lot of opportunity with that yeah absolutely absolutely i think i think that's the area where we've got the most potential to to improve business profitability too, is to improve lamb survivability and, and lamb productivity, um, which is really why we're talking about putting rams with ewes, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's their job ultimately. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think there's, I, th- I, I'm interested and I don't know, I don't, I know just enough about this to be dangerously inept. Um, but the whole idea of, kind of forage preferences and grazing behavior as it relates to genetics, I think is an interesting topic as we start thinking about using sheep and goats for, for fuel reduction or weed management or those types of things too. I think there's some, some interesting things we can learn about heritability in that regard too. Yeah. And I think I'm kind of the same boat. I'm not a geneticist, but <laughs> very interesting. I think the work that they're doing with epigenetics is really interesting. So, yeah. which is basically, you know, you have your DNA, which is where the instructions are, but depending on how that DNA is folded, the, you know, they can be read differently um, and how that embryo develops kind of what sort of environment that that embryo and then fetus is developing into can affect how that DNA is read. So even though they have the heritability or the DNA instructions for it, it may not actually be read the same way. And so I think all of that is super interesting, you know, because we could have a RAM that, you know, once we get into more genetic testing, we could have a RAM that has the genetics, but it'll be interesting to see how the phenotypes kind of you know, if he's proven <laughs> to mm-hmm. how that carries mm-hmm. out. So, you know, going back to, to uh, artificial insemination too, I, this may be something we've to talk about in a future episode, um, talking with Allison Van Inman at Davis, who's done a lot of gene editing work um, and is an Australian to boot. So we ought to be able to get her to work on sheep too. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's talked about some, some gene splicing, um, techniques now that would allow you to do kind of live AI to allow the Ram to do the artificial insemination. Um, and I think there's some interesting opportunities to look at, at that kind of technology with sheep too. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I think that would be huge <laughs> for yeah. the sheep industry. Yeah, it would, it would. 
So tell me kind of what you hope to, to do um, now that you're, you know, a world famous podcast host <laughs> with an enormous, um, enormous audience, huge audience, international audience. What, what's, what do you, what do you hope to cover over the coming months or, or learn about or talk about? Well, I, you know, I've been in my academic world for so long. <laughs> I, I really enjoy listening to your guys' podcast or the, our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Our, our. <laughs> um, just cause it, you know, I think that the perspective, the different perspectives are really valuable. Um, and I think, you know, like you and Ryan have very different operations and that kind of back and forth is really, really unique to have, you know, something like this where you're really transparent and open. Um, and so I hope to just offer a different perspective um, and hopefully sound pretty approachable. So if folks, you know, do have questions, they can find me on Instagram and we can always, you know, have discussions and I certainly do not know everything, but I'm pretty well trained as being a problem solver. So well, Ryan and I are excited because and, and intimidated because you've raised the uh the expertise level of the podcast hosts like by 300 <laughs> percent. So well, well we got lots to learn. <laughs> oh I, I really enjoy your real world applied type of talk. So one of the real world things that, that you and I just kind of collaborated on a couple of weeks ago was our lambing school. And um, just talk a minute about kind of the, the opportunities for new people in the industry and where they can get hands-on experience. You know, it seems like to me that um, a lot of the stuff that we covered in lambing school you may spend a day on it in a lab in your freshman animal science class, but it's the kind of work that you have to do over and over and over again to be proficient at. So what, what, where are those opportunities for new producers to get those hands-on skills? What can we be doing as an industry to do more of that? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think with folks that are interested in getting into agriculture, no matter what kind, I think, you know, finding opportunities to, whether it's do, you know, intern on farms or, you know, find a job on a farm. I think those are really great experiences and you can learn what you like and what you don't like. And I think, you know, there's so much value in just experiencing. Um, And then for those that do dive in and have animals, um, I think, you know, there's your Cooperative Extension, your local county agents are a great resource. And if they don't know the answer to the question, they sure have a great network of folks that will help, you know, help find that answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as far as hands-on, there's nothing replaces that kind of hands-on experience. And you will get that with your own animals, but I feel like to help you gain the most out of what you're experiencing, it is so helpful to reflect on that with someone. So whether that is, you know, those are your neighbors, those are your, you know, cooperative extension or your veterinarian, just kind of working, you know, having great relationships 
really helps kind of work through those things because everyone experiences them no matter how, you know, how long they've been in the industry or how new that we've, I feel like we've all kind of gone through those growing pains. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it seems like those are experiences that you can't shortcut by reading about them or, or, you know, those are things you have to live and, and, and then, as you say, reflect on with other people. Yeah. And that's something, you know, I, I, I could be an expert in, you know, A, B or C disease, but knowing how they apply in real time Mm -hmm. is huge. So, you know, like you said, you could have read about and planned for these things, but then what it, you know, until rubber hits the road and you actually start seeing how they all play together, it's, it's a lot and it's amazing. It's kind of why it's so rewarding because there is so much that goes into it. And a lot of it is out of your control, but being aware of that and kind of working around a lot of those issues is kind of the art of. Yeah. And, and part of it's, I think being intentional about what we're doing and maybe an example of this for us, we moved um, (laughs) moving pairs is always a challenge, you know, little lambs either don't know the routine or they think it's really fun to run back at the dog or the sheep herder and, (laughs) you know, go back where they came from. But Roger and I finally figured out after more than 10 years of working together that if we take five minutes before we start that move and talk about how we're expecting it to go and then what we'll do when it all falls apart, which it invariably does, But then something you just said brought this to mind, talking about it afterwards too, reflecting on it, what went well, what would we do different next time? And that's as simple as moving sheep a half mile up the road and as complex as why did we have 5% open use this year? What would we do different in our breeding management next year? having that time to reflect on what's going on, I think. Is- and it, it's, it's very, it's human nature for us to focus on the things that are going wrong. Mm-hmm. But if you can almost overemphasize what is going well and understand why that's working, it could actually help you understand how to change things to make them better. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that's a really know. good point. Yeah. That's a really excellent point. So um, we've got the Rams, California Ram sale coming up in a couple of weeks. Are you going to go down for any of that? Are you going to get to go to Tulare? I would love to. I'll put it on my calendar. <laughs> I know the chairman. I know the chairman. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think this year it's going to be unique in that it's uh we're going to be a, have a live event again. We were totally virtual last year, but we're going to live stream the auction. Um, I think on Facebook. I think that's. I think I get to be the technology nerd. Okay. Uh, <laughs> sale. So hopefully we'll live stream it on Facebook. But <laughs> that's uh, that should be a fun a fun event. And it's always fun to me to get to be around people that have been in the sheep business their whole life and and just listen. Yeah. So much to learn. Cool. There's people like John Oligary and, and, you know, Wes Patton that have forgotten more about Ram selection than I've ever learned. And just to kind of soak up their knowledge while being in their presence is always really cool. Yeah. 
I love those opportunities. I would love yeah. that. Yeah. Well, gosh, thank you. This is great. Welcome aboard. This is yeah, awesome. thank you. <laughs> this is great. And I think uh, next week you and Ryan are talking. Is that right? Yep. Is that the schedule? Yep. Good deal. Good deal. I'm going to put a little teaser out. I don't know if you've read a book um, called A Shepherd's Life by James Rebanks. No, I haven't. If you haven't, I'll, I'll get you the book. Um, he's a, a British shepherd from the north part of, the, of England. Um, who's, it's, he's a really cool guy. But he's got another book coming out. And I just talked to him on social media today, and we're going to get to interview him for our podcast about sheep production in the UK. So very cool. Look for that. Hopefully late spring, early summer should be fun. Awesome. Should be fun. Cool. Well, I, you know, so Ryan and I alternate somebody opens and somebody closes. So since I opened the podcast, I think it's up to you now to, to close us down. You can come up, you know, with your own signature departure line or however you want to do it. Okay. The pressure's on. Yeah. <laughs> I've listened to this podcast. Now I have to try to remember how you guys close. <laughs> okay. So this has been a sheep stuff you should know with Dan Macon at Flying Mule on Instagram and Dr. Rosie Bush at U-C-C-E dot sheep and goat on Instagram. Yeah. Check out Dr. Bush's Instagram account too. It's very cool. It's very cool. Yeah. I'm going to try to do more. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thanks, Rosie. Yeah, oh, thank you know what else we should tell everybody? I'm going to brag on this too, that in addition to being an accomplished veterinarian and extension person, you are an amazing fiber artist. And I actually have a sweater made from our wool that Rosie knitted that is like going to get passed down to my great grandchildren eventually. It's spectacular. Thank you. It's actually, I, it's an addiction. I am so in love with it. It's amazing. I started at the beginning of this whole pandemic and I can't put it down. And it's just so neat to get to, I don't know, experience sheep in a whole different way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you're a real artist at doing it. So thank you. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. All right. Sounds good. Take care, Dan. Thanks, Rosie.